Chapter Thirteen of the Man Eaters of Tsavo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Sally McConnell in Betty's Bay, South Africa, in February 2010. The Man Eaters of Tsavo by J. H. Patterson. Chapter Thirteen. A DAY ON THE Ndungu ESCARPMENT Immediately after breakfast camp was struck, and accompanied by a few of the Wakamba, we started off for the Ndungu escarpment, a frowning ridge which runs for a great distance parallel to the Sabaki, some three or four miles from its northern bank. We had not gone very far before I caught sight of a fine water-buck, and successfully bowled him over, a good omen for the day, which put us all in excellent spirits. Mabruki cut off several strips of the tough meat, and impaled them on a sharp stick to dry in the sun as he went along. I warned him that he had better be careful that a lion did not scent the meat, as if it did it would be sure to follow up and kill him. Of course I did not mean this seriously, but Mabruki was a great glutton, and by no means courageous, so I wanted to frighten him. As we trudged along towards the hill, I heard a peculiar noise behind a small rising to our right, and on looking over the crest I was delighted to see two beautiful giraffe feeding peacefully a little distance away, and straining their long necks to get at the tops of some mimosa-like trees, while a young one was lying down in the grass quite close to me. For some time I remained concealed, watching the full-grown pair with great interest, they had evidently just come up from the river, and were slowly making their way back to their home on the escarpment. They seemed on the most affectionate terms, occasionally entwining their great long necks and gently biting each other on the shoulders. Much as I should have liked to have added a giraffe to my collection of trophies, I left them undisturbed, as I think it's a pity to shoot these rather rare and very harmless creatures, unless one is required for a special purpose. We pushed on accordingly towards the escarpment, for I was very impatient to get to the top and explore a place where I felt convinced no other white man had ever set foot. From the river the ground rose gently up towards the foot of the ridge, and was covered more or less densely with stunted trees and bushes, and of course the inevitable wait-a-bit thorns. I was fortunate enough, however, to find a rhino path which afforded a fairly comfortable and open road, on which we could walk upright the greater part of the way. The climb up the escarpment itself was a stiff one, and had to be negotiated principally on all fours, but on the way up I discovered that there was an enormous cleft some miles to the right, which would probably have afforded an easier ascent. I had not time to explore it on this particular day, but I made a mental note to do so on some future occasion. After a two hours' journey from the river, we sat panting on the summit after our scramble, and surveyed the valley of the Tsavo, which lay spread out like a map about five hundred feet below us. Our home tents, the bridge, Tsavo station and other buildings were plainly visible, and the railway itself, like a shining snake, could be seen for many miles winding its way through the parched wilderness. Having taken a few photographs of the scene, we turned and struck through the Ndungu Plateau. Here I found the same kind of nika as that round Savo, the only difference being that there were more green trees about. The country, moreover, was somewhat more open, 
and was intersected by hundreds of broad and well-beaten animal paths, along which we could walk upright in comfort. I was leading the way, followed closely by Mahina and Mabruki, when suddenly we almost walked upon a lion which was lying down at the side of the path, and which had probably been asleep. It gave a fierce growl, and at once bounded off through the bush. But to Mabruki, who doubtless recalled then the warning I had given him in fun earlier in the day, the incident appeared so alarming that he flung down his stick-load of meat and fled for his life, much to the amusement of others, even the usually silent Wakamba joining in the general laughter as they scrambled for the discarded meat. We saw nothing more of the lion, though a few steps further on brought us to the remains of a zebra which he had recently killed and feasted on. But after this Mabruki kept carefully in the rear. Curiously enough, only a short while later we had an exactly similar adventure with a rhino, as owing to the tortuous nature of the path we walked right into it before we were aware. Like the lion, however, it was more frightened than we and charged away from us through the jungle. For about two hours we pursued our journey into the plateau and saw and heard a wonderful variety of game, including giraffe, rhino, bushbuck, the lesser kudu, zebra, warthog, baboons and monkeys, and any number of pa, the last being of a redder colour than those of the Tsavo Valley. Of natives, or of human habitations, however, we saw no signs, and indeed the whole region was so dry and waterless as to be quite uninhabitable. The animals that require water have to make a nightly journey to and from the Sabaki, which accounts for the thousands of animal paths leading from the plateau to the river. By this time we were all beginning to feel very tired, and the Behisti's stock of water was running low. I therefore climbed the highest tree I could find in order to have a good look round, but absolutely nothing could I see in any direction but the same flat, thorny wilderness, interspersed here and there with a few green trees, not a landmark of any sort as far as the eye could reach, a most hopeless, terrible place should one be lost in it, with certain death either by thirst or by savage beasts staring one in the face. Clearly, then, the only thing to do was to return to the river, and in order to accomplish this before dark it was necessary that no time should be lost. But we had been winding in and out so much through the animal paths that it was no easy matter to say in which direction the sabaki lay. First I consulted my Wakamba followers as to the route back. They simply shook their heads. Then I asked Mahina, who pointed out a direction exactly opposite to that which I felt confident was the right one. Mabruki, of course, knew nothing, but volunteered the helpful and cheering information that we were lost and would all be killed by lions. In these circumstances, I confirmed my own idea as to our way by comparing my watch and the sun, and gave the order to start at once. For about two solid hours, however, we trudged along in the fearful heat without striking a single familiar object or landmark. Mambruki murmured loudly. Even Mahina expressed grave doubts as to whether the sahib had taken the right direction. Only the Wakamba stalked along in reassuring silence. For some time we had been following a broad white rhino path, and the great footmarks of one of these beasts were fresh and plainly visible in the dust. He had been travelling in the opposite direction to us, and I felt sure that he must have been returning from drinking in the river, 
I accordingly insisted on our keeping to this path, and very soon, to my great relief, we found that we were at the edge of the escarpment, a couple of miles away from the place where we had made the ascent. Here a halt was called, a sheet was spread over some of the stunted trees, and under its shade we rested for half an hour, had some food, and drank the last of our water. After this we pushed on with renewed vigour, and arrived at the Sabaki in good time before sundown, having bagged a couple of guinea-fowl and a pa on the way to serve for dinner. After the long and fatiguing day my bathe in the clear, shady pool was a real delight. But I might not have enjoyed it quite so much if I had known then of the terrible fate which awaited one of my followers in the same river the next day. By the time I got back to camp, supper was ready and fully appreciated. The tireless Mahina had also collected some dry grass for my bed, and I turned in at once with my rifle handy and slept the sleep of the just, regardless of all the wild beasts in Africa. At dawn Mabruki roused me with a cup of steaming hot coffee and some biscuits, and a start was at once made on our return journey to Tsavo. The place where we had struck the Sabaki the previous evening was some miles further down the stream than I had ever been before, so I decided to take advantage of the Maasai Trail along its bank until the Savo River was reached. I did not think we should meet with any further adventure on our way home, but in the wilds the unexpected is always happening. Shortly after we started, one of the Wakamba went down to the river's edge to fill his calabash with water, when a crocodile suddenly rose up out of the stream, seized the poor fellow, and in a moment had dragged him in. I was on ahead at the time, and so I did not witness the occurrence, but on hearing the cries of the others I ran back as quickly as possible, too late, however, to see any sign of either crocodile or native. Mahina philosophically remarked that after all it was only a washenzi, savage, whose loss did not much matter and the other three Wakamba certainly did not appear to be affected by the incident, but calmly possessed themselves of their dead companion's bow and quiver of poison arrows, and of the stock of meat which he had left on the bank. I have since learned that incidents of this kind are of fairly frequent occurrence along the banks of these rivers. On one occasion while I was in the country, a British officer had a very lucky escape. He was filling his water bottle at the river when one of these brutes caught him by the hand and attempted to draw him in. Fortunately, one of his servants rushed to his assistance and managed to pull him out of the crocodile's clutches with the loss only of two of his fingers. As we made our way up the Sabaki, we discovered a beautiful waterfall about a hundred and fifty feet high, not a sheer drop, but a series of cascades. At this time the river was in low water, and the falls consequently did not look their best, but in flood time they form a fine sight, and the thunder of the falling water can then be plainly heard at Sarbo, over seven miles away, when the wind is in the right direction. We crossed the river on the rocks at the head of these falls, and after some hours hard marching reached camp without further incident. End of chapter 13